So this is James chapter 5, 7 to 20. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm, because the Lord is coming near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up if they have sinned. They will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters... If one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, thank you so much, Gemma. Let's pray. Our merciful God, uh, we pray that you'd uh, grant us wisdom about suffering. We need it. Uh, We're confused and we don't know how to make sense of it. And loving Heavenly Father, we know that if we lack wisdom, we only need to ask and you will give it to us. And we thank you for the power of your word. We have been born again by the word of truth. And we want to be integrated people with a deep faith. We don't want to be double-minded. We don't want to be hedging our bets all the time. We want to be able to know you and know as much of your will for our lives as you've revealed and be content to rest in the gap for when you haven't revealed it. And so we ask with humility that you'd uh, educate us and give us wisdom and faith today in Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've been around in our church for the last 12 months, you will know, of course, um, of the terrible sicknesses that have struck some of our young people. And therefore, it's impossible not to have them in mind when we come to a passage like James chapter five, which speaks a promise of healing. And it will be impossible not to think of the twin realities that we have to deal with, with on the one hand, God's wonderful healing, and on the other hand, God's strange ways in not healing. That's us, right? That's our context. Now, that's all I'm going to say about those people today, but that's, that's us. But, th- of course, there are many others here who've struggled with sickness and pain. 
or caring for people in sickness and in pain. And so isn't it wonderful that here in James chapter five, we have in verse 15, a promise um, and instruction about what to do when someone is unwell. There's the astounding promise, have a look, verse chapter five, verse 15, that the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And before we get to our questions, just note the kindness of God to give us a promise which speaks into the horrible reality of sickness. Isn't that kind? But of course, we, there are questions which are immediately raised. What if someone has faith but isn't healed? Whose fault is that? Is it on that person because they didn't have enough faith, even though they might have thought that they did? And then if that's true, now the poor person has to not just endure their sickness and their suffering, but also the terrible thought that somehow it might be their own fault. Or is it the case that God's the one to blame? This is kind of worse because he's broken his promise and then if that is true, that leaves the sufferer bereft and their faith in tatters. Now, we're not going to get through all the answers today, but in thinking this through, there are two clear traps to avoid. The first is the trap which says that here in this promise is a 100% cast iron guarantee that only if we follow this method, then full and complete healing will be instantly given, all right? That's a trap to avoid. That if only we pray with enough faith, every person who prays that prayer will be thoroughly and totally healed before our eyes. Now we need to know that um, many Christians have claimed this and we know of the great damage that they've done, okay? And yet, of course, we wonder whether they really believe it because if they did really believe it, why aren't they walking through the hospital wards, healing people and sending them home? Why aren't the hospitals being emptied before our eyes, at least of Christian people who are in there? Why aren't their teams going in, into there, emptying them? Why aren't, aren't sick people in their thousands and tens of thousands flocking to churches to pray for prayer just like the sick people flocked to Jesus in his day and they were miraculously healed? Right? Because that's what that side is talking about. Well, we have to avoid that trap of that that extreme. But on the other hand, we have to avoid the other extreme of so explaining away what's promised here that it empties the promise of all hope, all content, and just buries it. Okay? And maybe that's your fear today, that I'm going to explain it away and empty it of any of its blessing. What I hope you'll see today is that God does give us a wonderful promise here, but a promise which James very carefully phrases, and he very helpfully prefaces because you'll have noticed from our reading and it's there on your outline it's and have your bible open or your device James prefaces his instructions about healing with a prior discussion on suffering did you notice that this is intentional James wants us to first to understand from verses 7 to 13 that suffering and sickness is the normal experience for people, including Christians, until Christ comes. That's his assumption, that's the given. And that has to be taken into account when we get to the promise of verse 15. 
Now, in all this, James is um, not just being theoretical, not just being theological, he's very pastoral, and he's very practical. And so, on your outline, you'll see James tells us that, first of all, there are two dependencies we need to develop. That's verses 7 to 13. And then only then does he give his promise, and he couches it in two steps to action. Okay, two dependencies to develop, two steps to action. We begin in verse 7 with the first dependency that he wants us to develop, and that is patience. Be patient then, brothers and sisters. Now, you'll know that it's almost impossible to be patient if there's no end in sight, there's no cure pending, there's no hope that your sickness or your suffering might end. Well, James gives us one. He says, it's the Lord's coming, verse seven. He says, it's the Lord's coming, verse eight. And then he says, actually, it's the day of judgment, verse nine. Seven, eight, nine, right? Be patient until that day. Be patient until the Lord's coming. And James says that day is near. And we might raise an eyebrow at that, mightn't we? (laughs) Okay. What does he mean, near? Because hasn't it been 2,000 years? Yes, it has. Near, maybe not in our thinking, but near in God's thinking. Near in salvation history. Because we know from Acts chapter 2 that ever since Christ died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and poured out his spirit, we have been living in the last days. All right? The last days before Christ's coming. And that is the next big ticket item on God's timetable. By God's calendar, the Lord's coming, in terms of salvation history, it's near. And that's the moment for Christ's people when all suffering and sickness will end. That's the moment that we are promised that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That's the moment, the moment that we're to hope for, okay? Not now. Now is not the time when we can expect a suffering-free existence. James says, no, 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 get your expectations right. What we need right now to develop in our lives is patience. Patience until the Lord's coming. Now, to help us, James says, you've got to learn from the hardworking farmer. We're in a growth group on Wednesday night, and Robin, who grew up on, on a farm, she let forth and uh, helped us here, and she reminded us farmers know that they are not in control. They just know this. But that doesn't paralyze them, no, they take action, they plant their crops, but then they have to be patient and they have to trust God that God will give them the rain. And what Robin helpfully made us aware of, they don't just need patience for the end when the crop comes in, they need patience for every step along the way. They need to be patient for the autumn rains to come after sowing to get the early growth, and then they need to be patient for the spring rains to bring the crop to yield with its full head of grain. Patience along the way, patience until the end. And so it is with suffering. We need patience to get to the end, and we need patience along the way too. Three times we're told this, verse seven, Patience, verse eight, patience, verse 10, patience. We need to develop, we need to cultivate it. Now why? Because what's assumed in this whole discussion is that suffering in various forms will be the ongoing norm for believers until Christ's coming. Otherwise, why would we need patience? Okay? James says, look, think about the prophets. 
Hosea, Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, what he went through, Daniel, boy, Jeremiah, boy, he went through a lot. All the hardships they endured. And then think about them. Think about Job, who not only lost everything, but then had to endure 36 chapters of his friends giving helpful Bible verses at him. You know, you must have done something really bad, Job, for you to be suffering this terribly. Well, how wrong they were. They got it wrong, didn't they? And yes, of course, these people got frustrated. Job got frustrated, but they nevertheless endured. They persevered. They didn't give up. And many of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they had to look actually to the next life for their relief. It didn't come in their first life, in their lifetime. But they didn't give up. They didn't throw in their towel. And neither should we. Be patient, James says, until the Lord's coming. Now, how do you develop patience? Well, ironically, it's usually through suffering that you learn it, isn't it? I mean, if you never experience suffering, if you always got what you wanted in the immediate moment, you wouldn't have to learn patience, would you? We have to teach our children patience. You know, and you do the, do the little test. You know, you say, you can have one lolly now, or if you wait three minutes, you can have two. It's your choice. They have to learn, don't they? Patience. Delayed gratification. Okay. How do we develop patience, all right? Well, it's not a given. Growing in patience is not automatic. We can probably think of people who have gone through much, but their trials actually have made them bitter and more impatient, and they've given up on God. So how do you develop patience through trials? Well, James gives us two warnings. Verse 9, he says, don't grumble against one another. And then verse 12, don't swear, not meaning swear words, although that's probably a good idea um, not to have those. But swearing here that James is talking about is the sort of swearing where we feel like we need to add weight to what we say. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my sister's life. I swear on my father's honour, dot, dot, dot. James says, don't grumble and don't swear. Now, why? I mean, he says, above all, don't swear. We think, <laughs> wouldn't have been up there on my list of things that we need to do. James knows that under pressure, under suffering or sickness, we can very easily grumble. Does that ever happen to you? Right? We're about to do the book of Numbers starting next week. It's all about grumbling, so we're going to have a crash course in not grumbling, all right? Um, we can very easily grumble. We can become self-centered. We can speak against those who we think have it easier, those who don't really understand what we're going through, those who even are trying to help us. And we grumble. Well, that grumbling against others is the opposite to patiently looking to God and to the Lord's coming. Now, someone who's suffering might say, well, why should I look to him? He's the one to blame. He's turned against me. God's not good. He's evil. And they can grumble against him. But look at verse 11. James says, no, get it right. The Lord is full of compassion and he is full of mercy. He's not just a little bit has these qualities in a, in a small measure. He is full of them, compassion and mercy, even in times of suffering. 
So whatever we're, we're going through in terms of trials, it changes neither God's heart towards us because he is already full of compassion. He can't get any more, actually. And it doesn't change his commitment to us to keep us until he comes because he's already full of mercy. Grumbling is the opposite to being patient. Grumbling judges God. And grumbling, therefore, is very dangerous to our souls. And that's why we're warned about this rather ominously. Do not grumble or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door and do not swear or you will be condemned. Gosh, that's heavy, isn't it? I didn't realize these things were so dangerous. Well, they are. And actually, grumbling and swearing like that are being are connected. How? Well, you might imagine someone who's suffering, turning from God in their hearts, judging him as evil, judging him as against them, and then in some sort of spirit of defiance, because God's not taking care of them, they take matters into their own hands and say, I tell you, by dot, 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 I'm not putting up with dot, dot, dot any longer. By dot, 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 I tell you, I'm going to dot, dot, dot. Now, that is not a person who's saying, Lord, your will be done. This is a person who no longer trusts God, no longer waits for his coming. They've given up. James says, don't be that person. Be like the farmer. Be like the prophets. Be like Job. Develop patience and wait for the Lord's coming. That's the first dependency to develop. The second, very briefly, is in verse 13. He says, if any of you, is any of you in trouble? Guess what? They should pray. Is any of you happy, cheerful? Let them sing songs of praise. In other words, he's saying at all times, you know, whatever your situation, no matter what the circumstance, develop an active dependence upon the Lord that's dynamic, that's real, not just in your head, but do it. Talk to him. Sing about him. Bring, his needs before, bring your needs before him. Okay, depend upon him. When we're in suffering, pray. When we're cheered up, sing praise. Now, the only way you do that is if you actually believed you, did, you needed him, okay? You've got to realize God is the one who creates your life. He created you. And God is the one who sustains your life. He keeps it going. Um, we only exist bef because of him and we only continue to exist because he enables us to do so. So the wise person will come to him acknowledging this Actually, our lives depend upon him, and we will depend upon him. We will rejoice in him. We will lean in on him every single day by praying when we're in difficulty and by praising him when, things, when life is cheerful. So there's two dependencies James wants us to develop. The patience in the face of suffering until the Lord's return, and then active dependence upon the Lord expressed in prayer or praise. Now, all of that is the preface to what James is said, James's discussion now about healing. And straight away, do you see what he's done? He set our expectations straight. Because by telling us to be patient as we suffer, now we're not going to expect a complete 100% foolproof method for complete healing in every instance, right? And by telling us to develop an active dependence upon the Lord, now we're not going to expect him 
not to hear us, not to respond, not to answer us, to somehow not be compassionate or merciful because he is full of compassion and mercy for us in our lives now. And we're to depend upon him. So let's come to it. James gives us two steps to action, verses 14 to 15 and 16 to 20. Most of our time will be spent in verses 14 to 15 in case you get twitchy. Okay, now, the first step James tells us uh, to action in our lives is when there's sickness of body and of soul, we're to reach out for spiritual help. Now, I put in that and of soul because I don't think this is speaking about situations where we're just simply physically sick from illness alone. Why do I say that? Well, in those situations, what would you expect James to say? Is it, if, he's already said, it, 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 is any of you in trouble? They should pray. Is anyone happy? They should sing songs of praise. Now, if he's saying, if any of you is sick, what would you expect him to say now? Well, if any one of you is sick, you should pray yourself, shouldn't you? And you should go and see a doctor. They had doctors around then. He probably knew Luke, the doctor. Okay? That's what you'd expect him to say. But instead he says, Is any among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Which is very odd instruction. Why wouldn't James just tell the sick person, the believer, the sick believer, themselves to pray? I take it that's something that he's, he'd be in favour of. Why call the elders and not the doctor unless the sickness is also somehow got to do with a spiritual problem? Now, later on, we're helped to see what might be going on when James says in verse 15, if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. And in verse 16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. It seems that whatever the sickness the church person is suffering here, there's a good chance that that person thinks it might be connected with some specific sin, right? A health depletion is somehow connected to a wayward path. Now, we don't think like that. And it does raise the bigger question of what's the relationship between sickness and sin in the Bible? We may think there's actually no relationship there. You know, I'm just medical and I'm spiritual, and that's it. We'd be wrong. Okay, there are three things to say, I think. First of all, in a general sense, we, we, we can say from the Bible, all sickness comes generally from sin. Sickness was not there in the Garden of Eden. Sickness entered our world as part of the punishment for sin, part of the curse. We are now outside of the garden. We are in the world that is still under sin's curse. And we suffer under it, Christians and non-Christians. We all suffer, okay? We're not in heaven yet, where sin's curse will be finally undone. That means that all sickness generally can be said to be the result of sin, in a general sense. Secondly, However, sometimes people suffer physically because of a particular sin. Sometimes as a punishment, perhaps as discipline. Think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five. They really suffered. <laughs> okay, right. <laughs> or in 1 Corinthians 11, some of the Corinthians had died because they weren't celebrating the Lord's Supper in a way which cared for the body 
the other believers. And they died because of that. I hope we were doing the right thing this morning. <laughs> so we, we do know that sometimes people suffer physical sickness as a direct result of a particular sin, and it seems that that's what's on view here. But thirdly, we need to be really careful if someone is suffering a sickness to draw a direct line and say, well, that must be a result of a particular sin. Because if we don't know, we don't know, right? This was the mistake of Job's friends who thought that if Job was suffering so terribly, he must be guilty of some heinous sin, which they needed to point out to him. All the time, we know Job was innocent. Or then there's the blind man in John chapter nine. The disciples saw this man who had been born blind. He was by the roadside and they asked Jesus, well, if, he, if he's been blind from birth, who sinned? Was it him or his parents that sinned to, be, to cause that as a punishment? Jesus said, neither. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. So you have to be very, very careful in saying a particular sickness is the result of a particular sin and drawing that line of causality. That's why the elders are called in. They have to work out what Job's friends failed to work out. Was there a sin in this person's life that needs repenting of? And if so, then they, who are mature in the faith, needed to bring out the, the administering balm of the gospel and apply it to that person in their life and restore them. And then they would be healed. Now, just to show you how I got here in this understanding, I want, you to, I want to go through a couple of questions which are very obvious, but you'll see. So first of all, who initiates the prayer for healing? Have a look in your Bibles. Who gets things going? Is it the elders? No, it's not, is it? Verse 14, is any among you sick? Let them, that is the sick person, start things. It's the sick person who initiates it, not the elders, not the person at the front of the healing rally who says, there's someone out there with a sore back. They need to come out now. It's not that person. It's the afflicted person who actually calls for prayer. Secondly, who do they call? It's not the person with a spiritual gift of healing, as someone might call if they were just sick in body but not sick spiritually. And neither do they say, oh, well, you've got to call the doctor. No, they call the elders. Why do they call the elders? Because they're the ones who are recognized with spiritual maturity and their role it is to restore someone who's, who's grappled with sin. They restore that person through leading them in confession and repentance and assuring them of God's forgiveness of them and they restore them back into fellowship with God. And then thirdly, what do the elders do? Okay, James says, well, call the elders and they're to pray over them because presumably the person is too sick to get up so they have to be over the person and then anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord and to us that seems bizarre because we generally only use oil for cooking right but back then oil was a sign of wellness Psalm 104 verse 15 God makes oil 
to make our faces shine. We get our cosmetics from oil. This is a gift from God. Oil was a, was a sign of health and vitality and wellness, okay? So it's a sign of wellness, but also it's a sign of being consecrated to God. Priests were anointed with oil. I've got some verses there on your outline. Kings were anointed with oil. They were set aside by God with oil to serve a particular role. Now, I'm guessing, but if you put those things together, the elders would anoint someone as a sign of their restoration that they were coming back to God, that they were consecrating themselves, that they were well with him. Okay? Now, lastly, we come to it. What is the prayer of faith? It's an odd phrase because actually every prayer needs faith. So if every prayer involves faith, why does James ask for a prayer of faith? What does he mean? Is it the orthodox prayer of right faith, right content, believing the right things about God? Yes, but is it also the prayer that really trusts? It says, Lord, I believe you can do this. I believe you can heal. I believe you can restore. I do not doubt. Yes, it is. Is it a prayer which dictates to God the kind of name it and claim it? We believe you absolutely will heal now in Jesus' name and because we believe you are going to do it right now. No, it is not. Because throughout his letter, James has been wanting us to develop a mature Christianity, a deep faith, a faith which in chapter one does not doubt, yes, which leans into God. A faith which chapter four at the same time is humble and submits our plans to God and says, God, if it's your will. Okay, that's not a dictating sort of faith. A faith in chapter five which keeps on trusting despite. A faith which looks, which patiently waits despite present suffering. A faith which looks to the Lord's return. And a faith which believes despite ongoing sickness that God isn't evil, he is actually full of compassion and full of mercy. Now if someone is sick, maybe through sin, and maybe they've wandered from God and they're weak in faith as well as body, this sort of strong faith, mature faith, is what the elders can bring to the situation. And so now we come to the promise of verse 15. James chooses his words very carefully. I want you to pay attention. He says, the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, literally will save them. It's the Greek word for salvation. And he says, and the Lord will raise them up, literally will resurrect them. So the prayer offered in faith will save that person and resurrect them. That's what it says. Now, but what does he mean? Now, in the Bible, those words, save and resurrect, actually have a range of meanings. So in the Bible, it can mean being saved from sickness through physical healing and being raised from the sickbed to health once again. Remember when Jesus raised Jairus's daughter who'd been dead. Little girl, I say to you, get up, rise, resurrect. And up she got. She was healed. 
It can mean being saved from distress and anguish and being raised to become useful for God once again. It can mean being, of course, saved from sin and then being raised in a resurrection body on the last day. Well, guess what? The prayer of faith doesn't dictate to God which of those meanings God must do. The prayer of faith prays knowing that God will save and will raise this person, but then leaves the saving and the raising and what form they take up to the Lord. The prayer of faith entrusts the person to God who is compassionate and merciful and waits to see the way in which God will save that person, the way in which God will raise that person up. Now, of course, if you're just sick, right? Of course you can pray for healing now. Of course you can. Um, That's a good thing to pray for. But we have to remember the expectation James has set. You know, we've got to expect suffering now and wait for the Lord's coming. But, you know, pray for healing, sure. That's a good thing. This prayer, in other words, applied to this situation, I think is a prayer that every sick person can pray. Any one of us can pray for each other. And the elders can also pray it for people who might have sinned as well. So we can say, and, you know, if I was to sort of illustrate this, I think we can say, loving Father, we have no doubt that you will save and raise this person because you have promised it. And we believe your word. And despite what the ordeal our friend is going through, we do not doubt, we believe that you are full of compassion and mercy. You are not evil towards this person, you are good, even now. And so we humbly pray for their healing and restoration, but we do not dictate to you In full confidence in you, we actually entrust them into your hands because we know that you absolutely will save and you will raise them at the Lord's return. And having entrusted them to you, we now wait patiently and we look excitedly to see the ways in which you will save and raise them. And we pray your will be done. That's the prayer of faith. Okay, very quickly, last last action point. James comes to a broader point from that situation and he says, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Sin wrecks relationships within the body and so if there has been sin against one another, we need to come clean. I don't think we do this very well. I don't think we do it often Um, and I think we need to listen to this. Let's keep in mind a few principles. First of all, when you confess, James says you don't have to come to the pastor, you don't have to come to the priest, you have to confess your sins to each other. Secondly, you confess to those you've sinned against. If I've sinned against you, I've got to come and confess my sins to you. Uh, If I've sinned against the church, I have to confess my sins to the church because the church needs to forgive me and relationship needs to be restored. Thirdly, it's not always helpful to confess your sins to people you haven't sinned against. So it's not always helpful to share your private sins with your growth group, for example. All right, it's not necessarily helpful for them, okay? And if they're not the ones you've sinned against, you don't need to. Number four, when someone comes and confesses a sin to you, 
What are you to do? You're to pray for that person, James says, so that you, that person can be healed. And you can be healed, a relational restoration. And if sin has resulted in sickness, then that person can be physically healed. We are reminded that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then we're given the example of Elijah. We think he's a spiritual giant. How could we pray like him? James says, guess what? He was a person just like us. He was a man of immense faith. He stared down the prophets of Baal, but also he's very weak. He ran for his life and told the Lord he wanted to give up and die. He wasn't perfect, but he was righteous, right standing with God, and his prayer worked. Not because his prayer, he was powerful, but because the Lord was powerful, right? God told him that it wouldn't rain. Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. It didn't rain for three and a half years. Okay, how do we be wise to suffering? Two dependencies develop. Patience until the Lord's coming and an active dependence upon the Lord in prayer and praise. Two steps to action. Where there's sickness of body and soul, reach out for spiritual help. And if Michelle Wynn was here, she'd say, and medical help as well. Um, And then also confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Our ultimate heart for one another can be summarized in the last two verses, and this is James' heart for us as well, and with these words, he finishes the letter and we'll finish uh, this. Okay, he says, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And that is our core business, okay? Father in heaven, thank you for James, and uh, you've helped us through this quite tricky passage, but we praise you that he set our expectations right about what where to expect now, but also what you're like during times of difficulty. And thank you that you, Heavenly Father, will save and will raise up Help us to be people of prayer and confession and forgiveness and restoration. In Jesus' name, amen.